I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue if you dare. Yes, yes, welcome. Welcome to Agoraphobia 2020. As surely as pumpkin spice, sweaters, and the migratory pattern of avians herald the coming of autumn, surely so too does Agoraphobia, when the podcasting prowess of the Agora Podcast Network combines to bring you spooky and disturbing tales from around the world and across time. For Agoraphobia 2020, we've prepared a particularly hellish month of content to keep pace with a particularly hellish year, straight from the bowels of hell itself. To begin, our very own Flamifer, Benjamin Jacobs, of Wittenberg to Westphalia fame, throws the first offering upon the pyre with the story of the monster of the Highland Clearances in which we find out why nobody's at home. Hello, my name is Benjamin Jacobs. I'm the host of a podcast called Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Today for Agoraphobia, I'm going to tell you a story. This tale is told in many ways by many different people, but this is how I tell it. Across the sea-washed fringe of Northern Europe, in the highlands and islands of Scotland, you will find them. It can be hard to discern them from the landscape at first, as the grey bedrock that formed this land is the same material used by generations of people to build their homes. But once you pick them out, they're everywhere. Windswept triangles of pale stone poking above the horizon, set on top of low stone boxes with open tops. Some of these houses still have roofs, some thatch, though more of slate, 
And in these homes, a weary traveler may enter and find a view of life as it was at whatever point in the past this land was abandoned. Small beds, some with mattresses, line the walls of the main room. Kettles cold and rusted on the stovetops. Clocks hanging on the peeling wallpaper and chairs neatly set under the tables. That said, by far the largest number of these houses have no roof, and devoid of cover the contents have rotted away in the incessant sea breeze of the North Sea, leaving only a few traces of fire in the rubble. But the stones still stand, indifferent to the wind, mute testament to people that occupied this land for centuries before some calamity came and stole them away. What could have done this? What monstrous force could wipe out so many thriving villages? And what happened to those who left? This, my friends, is the story of the land clearances of Scotland. But beware. The invisible hand that drove these pitiful souls out across the cold Atlantic Ocean is not restricted to Scotland. It lives with us still, and may be in your very home as we speak. As with all the best fairy stories, this tale begins in the Middle Ages, in a time when society was organized in a more traditional fashion. Most of Europe was organized around some variation of the common field system, in which all the residents of a village would have some share of the land in a field that they would work in common. Every year the villagers would get together and portion out the land based on each family's ancestral shares, but in such a way that no family would end up working all the bad land in a given year, and they probably weren't working the same patch twice. They would all farm the land together, starting the planting at mutually agreed times and sharing capital-intensive resources like plows, mills, and baking ovens. In addition, forest land and pasture land, not being actively farmed, were generally considered common property, and therefore were also managed by village meetings, consensus-based decision-making, and ancient rituals. The crops grown focused on wheat, but a mixture of cereals and beans were grown as a hedge against crop failures. At the end of the year, each family would harvest their land, and a portion of the wheat would go to the lord of the village's rent, dues, and taxes. What was left would feed the family through the coming winter. I am heavily oversimplifying all this, but these are the broad strokes. The entire system looks like a Byzantine nightmare from a modern standpoint, and individual initiative was not exactly rewarded. But it had a lot of advantages in an era when scientific advances in agriculture were not particularly common. On the one hand, it made sure that the key families in the village helped each other get through the year by equitably sharing the resources available, while on the other, it also ensured that no one was slacking off or abusing the system. Contrary to popular myth, it was not common for people to overgraze the pasture lands or the common wildernesses, because everyone had a stake in keeping the common holdings in good order, and everyone was constantly looking over each other's shoulders. In situations where overuse of resources happened, it was often due to broader social problems like overpopulation, corruption, or war. Scotland had their own unique version of the open field system, called the Runrig system. Notably, the land in northern Scotland is not good, and so the system is altered to reflect this reality. The Runrig system usually only had one field, which is to say crop rotation was not common. This might seem counterintuitive, because crop rotation increases yields and protects the quality of arable land, but the reality was that there was so little arable land in Scotland that what there was had to be used, every year. On the other hand, Scotland has nearly unlimited amounts of pasture areas, which is to say places that cannot reliably produce crops of cereal, but which will reliably produce grass. 
Livestock were graved on these common pasture lands, which again were managed by the village or in Scotland, the township councils, and the byproducts of raising these livestock made up a much larger portion of the caloric intake of Scottish peasants than those further south. Though Scotland had fewer woodlands than the areas to the south, the ocean and the lochs provided fish and kelp to eat, and just as importantly, to fertilize the arable land. The rights of the peasants were protected in this society by an ancient legal system called Duthkas, I think. This was a codification of the common law system of the Highland clans. Important to our story, this system made it illegal to evict any member of a clan from clan territory, and gave the hereditary clan leaders control over handing out leases of land to peasants. The clan leader was functionally the lord, and the landowners in this system came to be called the laird as dialects of English intruded into Scotland. As with many lords in Europe, the lairds in Highland Scotland were absentees as a rule. They spent their time in the lowlands, where the much more interesting and lucrative political action was located. But the lairds did still like being rich, and so to ensure their lands were paying their dues, a tax farming system was employed where individuals, usually members of the gentry but not necessarily, would lease the right to manage these holdings from the laird. The laird would get a steady revenue, and this individual, called the taxman, would try to squeeze more revenue from the peasant than he was paying to the laird. The common field system in Europe, particularly in England, began to break up starting in the 1300s and 1400s. As the cash economy of Europe began to rise in importance, lords found that aggregating huge piles of in-kind payments of farm goods was not entirely convenient. Also, in the wake of the Black Death, some lords needed to find ways to work their land profitably with a minimum of humans. It was not a linear process, and things would swing back and forth as economic conditions changed. But it was eventually found that some of the areas depopulated by the Black Death were making the lords more money by producing sheep for the lucrative wool and textile trade than they'd ever made as overcrowded farming villages. This started the enclosure movement in England, as lords sought to gradually convert their holdings into sheep production operations. By the 1500s and 1600s, this process was joined by the so-called agricultural revolution, in which early Enlightenment-era scientists started finding ways to produce more agricultural goods with less land and found lords willing to try out their ideas. This had the effect of expanding agricultural production and reducing prices, even as English lords had less and less land devoted to growing grain. Again, these are broad phenomena that took place over centuries. The phenomena spread north over time, much to the consternation of observers rich and poor alike, and you will find many in English writing bemoaning people who prized sheep over people. Nonetheless, no one really understood the process underway and tended to blame greedy landlords. By the 1700s, the phenomenon of land enclosure had reached Scotland. There are a number of reasons it took so long, not the least of which being that Scottish armies relied much more heavily on infantry than most European armies of the time, and it is much easier to recruit infantry from the peasantry than from anywhere else. Nonetheless, by the end of the 1600s, the English civil wars finally died down, and since the final phase of those wars had involved a pretender to the English throne, raising an army of wild highlanders, there started to be some gentle nudges from Scotland's benevolent overlords to the south towards taming the highlands. These gentle nudges involved some fairly draconian cultural laws and huge military garrisons involved in a near-constant state of resentment and hostility with the civilians around them. In this context, the first phase of the clearances began. 
The lairds of Scotland, now fully plugged into the English cash economy system, felt the need to rationalize their estates to produce more cash revenues. To their credit, most of them, at least outwardly, said that they thought that they would be improving the lives of their tenants as well. This first step involved getting rid of the taxmen by buying out or not renewing their leases. This is probably a good thing all around. The lairds then surveyed their estates and began moving people around. Initially, this meant moving families from inland glens and dales out to the coastland. These estates were huge, so this was all still internal to the laird's holdings, and more importantly, to the clan lands of traditional Scottish law. The inland areas became huge sheep pastures, while the relocated families were given crofts, which is to say cottages near the coast, with a small amount of arable land and access to some common pasture land. The family was expected to work the land, but the land was understood not necessarily to be big enough on its own to really support a family, especially as it bordered the North Sea. It was hoped that the peasants would supplement their farm work with jobs in the fishing or kelp harvesting industries, or in the burgeoning manufactories in nearby cities and towns. The changes thus far, while likely very disruptive at the time, stayed at least within the leather of clan law, since the peasants had not been evicted from clan land and had been given farms. It is these crofts that you will find dotting the coastline of Scotland to this day. Unfortunately, the crofting system did not provide enough resources for a family to really thrive, and migration began almost immediately. Many Scottish families had, by this point, already started migrating to Northern Ireland, and some followed at this point, while others started heading to North America, where they made up a large part of the land-hungry early waves of settlers. But at this point, the flow was merely a trickle compared to the floods yet to come. The initial problems with Crofts compounded over time. As the English trading network moved from strength to strength, inflation became a thing, and the lairds started seeking new ways to increase their profits. Eventually, they began raising rents. The situation would have been unsurvivable if a migrant had not come the other way, back from the Americas. The potato, originally domesticated by humans in the harsh conditions of the Andes of South America, was pretty comfortable growing in the mountains of Scotland, and required comparatively little in the way of capital investment or physical effort. With the introduction of the potato, families in Scotland found that they could just continue to eke out a living, even with the rising rents. But only just, and not everyone. Then, in 1815, the economy collapsed. The end of the Napoleonic Wars meant that demand for goods imploded, even as the labor market was flooded with returning veterans and the government raised taxes to pay off their debts. Just to make things extra awesome, the kelp industry collapsed at this time and never really recovered. Now the lairds began to see the crofters as an impediment to their continued improvement of the land, and following the new logic of Malthusian economics, as an excess of population. New pseudoscientific racial theories also viewed these Celtic-speaking peasants as inherently inferior breeds of human. Tenants who failed to pay rents were now being evicted, in contravention of clan law. This led to riots. Seeking to lessen the social unrest, a policy of assisted migration was eventually adopted by most of the lairds, where the landlord would buy a ticket to America or Canada for the evicted tenants on the condition that they never return. Things reached ahead in the 1840s. The potato famine, so famous in Ireland, was just as devastating in Scotland. Thousands were expelled from Scotland each year until 1850, at which point they simply started running out of people to expel. 
In some ways, though, 1850 was just the start of a third phase of the clearances, which lasted at least until World War II and arguably continues today. Many crofting communities held on, despite everything that happened, particularly in areas like the islands of Scotland where, quote-unquote, improvements were not really feasible. Gradually, the problems caused by short-sighted improvements were replaced by frivolous and short-sighted neglect. As the lairds invested their money in more profitable things than sheep, many estates were converted into vacation homes, with populations evicted simply to make way for hunting preserves. This was not taken lying down, and there have been regular riots, strikes, and land occupations ever since at one level or another. The Crofters League was, for a time, a major force in Scottish politics, and eventually merged with the Labour Party, helping lead to their success, and subsequently the SNP. Same. This kind of disruption eventually wound down, initially due to laws passed by Parliament protecting the crofters, but really after World War II when changes to the tax code in the UK made massive estates harder and harder to maintain economically. But crofting communities can continued to decline, now mostly as a result of neglect. Rent was occasionally collected by mail, but the lairds came to not pay much attention to their holdings on the Arctic fringes of Europe. In these estates, simple investments in infrastructure, like the establishment of roads, bridges, post offices, and schools, were ignored. Eventually, the UK government stepped in to make some of these improvements, but it often took vigorous political pressure to achieve such satisfaction. There's a tale of one old man on Skye building a road from the town out to his house by himself. When he finished the last few feet of roadway, his heart gave out. An ambulance was now able to reach him, but sadly he still died on the way to the hospital. In the absence of infrastructure or economic development efforts, children in these communities had no real hope of advancement or improvement. Though the government would come to provide an education and health care, most people who could used these benefits to move away. Eventually, some threshold of collapse was inevitably reached in each of these communities. The school was closed, or the post office, or the general store, and suddenly the basics of living a modern life were no longer feasible, and one more island or hillside would be left to the ghosts. The Highland Clearances retain a firm hold on the Scottish national mythology. Anytime a traditional community is so thoroughly disrupted, the result is going to be collective trauma. But in some ways, the Scottish experience was special. Not necessarily from being worse, but from being remembered. Unlike, say, the land enclosures of England, the Scottish Clearances happened at a time when the intellectuals of the era were embracing the Romantic movement, and had come to see value in traditional culture. Lowland Scotland was one of the epicenters of this movement, and these figures found that the traditional culture that they so romanticized was actually disappearing before their eyes for reasons they did not fully grasp. They blamed the people in power, alternating between greedy landlords, or the English, of course, and some went on to suggest the clearances were akin to genocide. It remains an emotional topic to this day, not least because, as I said, in some ways the clearances are still happening as crofting communities continue to decline. All the same, I am not personally of the opinion that the clearances constituted a true genocide, for the record. In my mind, that would require a sinister governmental force bent on causing population clearances specifically because the people were Scottish. And while the British government certainly was pushing down on Scottish culture, and while anti-Celtic bigotry was certainly part of this process, I don't personally see it as the primary factor, given that the lairds were usually in some sense Scottish themselves. At least, they wore kilts in their official family portraits. 
So what was it that destroyed these Scottish crofting communities? What monster drove these communities across the sea, leaving only sad songs in their wake to be recorded by professors from Edinburgh chasing after the final wisps of this dying culture? Well, in a word, capitalism. Now, I'm not here to tell you that there's a different system that is magically going to solve all of our problems. I don't believe in that kind of utopian thinking. That said, the issues that caused the Highland clearances are issues that continue to haunt us to this day. I say this not just because of the continued slow decline of crofting in Scotland, though there's certainly an economic structural element there as well. The simple reality is that full-scale clearances continue today across the developing world, and at a scale that makes the Scottish clearances look like a minor inconvenience. Anytime a traditional society is plugged into the industrial economic system without some sort of control or protection for the people on the ground, something like what happened in Scotland seems to be the result. However the traditional farms are organized, they are never efficient enough to produce resources at the scale necessary to give their owners and residents the income needed to attain a modern standard of living when set against competition from the industrialized planet. And as we saw in Scotland, traditional methods of land ownership exercised by peasant farmers are often simply not recognized by modern court systems controlled by wealthy individuals. As a result, families that have lived on land holdings as long as anyone can remember are easily driven off, either by having their land purchased for what seems like a huge amount of money to them, or by someone who has never been to their village asserting that they have a right to property based on an abstract legal concept of ownership that the current occupant has never had to deal with before. The people driven from these farms go to the only place they can go the swelling slums of the nearby cities where they throw together a shack made of whatever they can find on whatever land they can occupy, and they get whatever work is available. The crushing poverty that results is as bad as anything from the satanic mills of England, Scotland, and the United States. And so the creative destruction of capitalism continues to burn through the traditional societies of the global south to this day, creating a hundred highland clearances every year in societies that have not yet generated the kind of wealth needed to produce the social safety nets needed to soften the blow. Meanwhile, we in the developed world sleep soundly, thinking capitalism to be a tamed beast, giving us gifts from thin air. But beware, gentle listener, safe and warm in your home, capitalism is an ever-hungry creature. We never can know what the future holds with this wild beast. The slightest slip in the chains that we have around its neck, and it may turn and begin to feed once again. Our cities burning, our children driven out across the landscape seeking work, our communities fracturing to pieces, our small towns abandoned, our institutions frayed. Luckily, we still have that firm grip on the lead. Capitalism still serves us and not the other way around. Doesn't it? So comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The Internationale unites the human race. So comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The Internationale unites the human race.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And in our second segment today, agoraphobia first-timer Samuel Hume from the History of Witchcraft podcast mixes up his own noxious tale for our delectation. Wrapped in the misty cloak of a god, the small rocky island of man has a rich history. Positioned as it is in the centre of the Irish Sea, it's said that on a clear day, from the peak of the mountain of Snaefell, one can see all seven kingdoms. England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, man, heaven, and the ocean, the realm of the god Manannan. Each of those kingdoms has left its mark on the heritage of the Manx, with peoples of the surrounding kingdoms sometimes ruling and sometimes being ruled by man. The kingdom of man and the isles, a legacy of the Viking invasions, formed a small seaborne domain. This Scandinavian influence merged with Celtic legends, and so the Isle of Man boasts far more supernatural residents than its small size might suggest. One such legend is that of the Beguine. Beguines are huge, troll-like creatures, covered in thick black hair and armed with sharp claws and tusks. They can change their shape at will, becoming as huge as a mountain, and have some power over the weather. But, like all magical creatures, they have their weaknesses. Beguines tend to stay away from people, living in the forests and around waterfalls, but if disturbed or offended, they have a fierce and violent temper. The most famous Beguine is that of St. Trinian's. This Beguine lived on Greba Mountain, but somehow this creature became trapped on a ship sailing to Ireland, and he was not happy about it. Summoning a storm, the Beguine sought to crash the ship into the steep and treacherous western cliffs, returning him to man and killing all aboard for daring to take him from his home. However, the Beguine was not the only magical presence that day. The captain, unable to wrestle control of his ship away from the storm, and seeing the deadly rocks getting closer, he called on the Pictish Saint Ninian. He swore to build a church in the saint's honour, if the saint saved his life and those of his crew. Suddenly, the storm petered out, and the ship gently glided into the harbour at Peel. The Beguine was not best pleased at this insult. He swore, St Ninian should never have a whole church in Ellenvanen. 
why the captain chose to build his church at the foot of Greba Mountain, the home of the Begain he had so offended, is unknown. Perhaps he was ignorant that this was the Begain's home. Perhaps he had faith that St. Trinian, the anglicisation of Ninian, had once defeated the Begain, and could do it again. Whatever his reasoning, the captain fulfilled his promise. The church of St. Trinian was built. The night the chapel was completed, the Begain revealed his fury. Charging down the mountain with the speed and in the manner of a storm, he tore the roof off of St. Trinian's in his rage. The congregation arrived the next day to conduct the first service in St. Trinian's honour, only to find the church in ruins. But, bolstered by their faith in the saint, the parishioners worked together to restore the chapel to its former glory. The roof was rebuilt even stronger, and St. Trinian was again invoked once more to protect this monument to him. This physical and supernatural reinforcement was not enough. That very night, the Begain once again stormed down the mountain. Even more furious, his anger pelted the closest villagers with a terrible storm. With an almighty roar, the Begain once again tore the roof from the church, scattering it across the landscape. When the congregation emerged from their homes after a sleepless night, they returned to St. Trinian's to find all their work undone. Yet, they did not give up. The Begain would be humbled, the people said. Once again, they rebuilt the roof, strengthening it even more, and again invoked St. Trinian. This time, a man volunteered to spend the night in the church. Legend has it, this man was a young tailor, Timothy Clucas, who boasted that he would not only spend the night in the chapel, but he would stitch a pair of breeches while doing so. So, as night fell, Clucas, needle and thread in hand, settled down with a candle at the altar. After a few hours of silence, the moon reached its highest point in the night sky, and the Begain appeared. Not as a giant, violent storm, as he had the other two nights, but in his natural form, lifting a flagstone and climbing out of the ground to tower over the tailor. The Begain knew about the man's boast. He knew he'd been challenged, and while he could easily tear the man in two, he would play his little game. The Begain began to taunt Clucas, threatening him, goading him, doing whatever he could to distract the tailor from his work. But Clucas didn't look at the monster, and instead just worked faster. The Begain began to lose his patience. He didn't like being ignored, and certainly not by a little man doing needlework. A storm began to pick up, summoned by the Begain. The candle began to flicker as the wind blew through the empty windows. The Begain began shouting and cursing Clucas, and all the while he just kept sewing. As the first rays of sunrise began to peak over the horizon, the wind only began to buffet the chapel even more. The Begain began to transform, growing larger and larger, roaring at the tailor. Just in time, Clucas finished the last stitch, cut the thread with his scissors, and bolted from the church. As he rushed through the door, 
the Begain finally tore the roof off once again and chased after the mortal who had infuriated him. Clucas ran, leaving everything behind except for the breeches, proof of his wager. The Begain laughed at the tailor, cackling at the sight of the man fleeing for his life with a pair of trousers flailing behind him. By this point, the Begain had grown to an enormous size, and when Clucas looked behind him, he saw the monster reaching out to devour him. Clucas only just survived by leaping over a stone wall and into the safety of a graveyard. The Begain, now several times taller than a man, was forced to stop. For a magical creature such as he, consecrated ground was impassable. The storm raged in a mirror of the Begain, who screamed threats and insults at the exhausted tailor. The Begain was so angry, so full of impotent rage, that he tore his own head from his body and threw it, screaming, at Clucas. The tailor, seeing this terrifying sight, could only duck behind a gravestone as the head of the Begain exploded with incredible force. When the dust settled, and the winds of the storm died down, Clucas remained unharmed. But St. Trinian's church was once again ruined. And it remains ruined and roofless to this day. The villagers had learnt not to test the patience of the Begain, and let the chapel sit without a roof. You can still see St. Trinian's in an empty field at the foot of Greba Mountain, a relic centuries old of a battle between a saint and a Begain, and the Begain won. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.